0: The Old Pilot's Plane Tales 101 Seconds It was on the very first day of 1978 when the Air India 747 started up and taxed out for a departure from Mumbai's Chachalapati International Airport then called Bombay's Santa Cruz. On board the aircraft named the Emperor Ashoka were 190 passengers and 23 crew, including the experienced flight crew, who had amassed over 33,000 flight hours between them. It was the second time that they had tried to depart, as their first attempt had been brought to a halt when it was discovered that the Boeing's number one engine wasn't responding to throttle movement. They taxied back to their parking position, and engineers came on board to look at the fault, which was cured in only a few minutes, but the delay that they incurred ensured that they were going to depart in the dark. Had they taken off just a little earlier, even in the dying half-light of sunset, it's doubtful that any of us would know about Air India Flight 855 let alone want to talk about it. Having fixed the engine problem, the aircraft was in good shape and there was nothing to suggest that this wouldn't be a routine flight. Many of the passengers on board were heading out to the oil-rich Gulf states to take up jobs there and were leaving families and loved ones behind so that they could earn good wages to send back to India. The Boeing 747 they were in was one of the most exciting airliners of the time as it had opened up air travel to the masses when previously it was the purview of the well-heeled jet set, those who could afford to fly. The Dash 200 variant had come onto the market in 1971 and Air India was an early customer, acquiring Victor Tango Echo Bravo Delta in March of that year. The aircraft was named after the Mauryan ruler Emperor Ashoka and was the first in a fleet of several Maharaja-themed luxury airliners that Air India had acquired in the 1970s. They were advertised as your palace in the sky and featured the classic window outlines that symbolized the palaces of the Maharajas. This new theme was first used on the Emperor Ashoka aircraft, which introduced the Jarukha window, prevalent in the architecture of Rajasthan, which came from an Indo-Islamic design. The feature juts forward from a stone wall, giving beauty to a window opening and shade to a room. But more importantly, it served to allow women to see outside without being seen themselves. The design had been painted around the outside of each of the aircraft's windows. In the first class cabin the sumptuous lounge was an indication of why this aircraft was the pride of the air india fleet it had been designed by the art studio of bombay in collaboration with the art department of air india comprising rich tapestries and art that drew contemporary designs from ancient indian motifs the interior was known as the most exotic and luxurious cabin in the sky, featuring cocktail bars and epitomising the idea of the golden age of travel. It introduced patrons to art from the Gupta period. The murals in the lounge were adapted from the celebrated frescoes of the Ajanta Caves in Maharashtra, illustrating scenes from the Jakarta tales. Now, seven years later, the aircraft was still in great condition and would, in the normal course of events, have had many years of flying ahead of it. The captain that day was an experienced 51-year-old with 18,000 hours of flying. He had been with the company for 22 years, and to have become a captain on Air India's most prestigious fleet shows that his career had been very successful. His flight engineer was also a senior man. Indeed, he had been with the company longer than the captain and had 11,000 hours. The first officer was the junior man on the flight deck that day, but he had come from a very successful career in the Indian Air Force, where he rose to the rank of wing commander. During his time there, he had commanded two squadrons, number 41, a de Havilland DHC-3 Otter Squadron, a number 48, which flew the Fairchild Packet C119 Flying Boxcar, so he was hardly new to the world of aviation. In the cabin were the young and beautiful cabin crew. The girls were single and dressed in glamorous saris. But that time there were strict rules concerning age, weight, and marital status of the female cabin crew, and the men in smart suits. And they'd prepared their 190 passengers for takeoff and taken their seats. In the cockpit, all the pre takeoff checks had been completed, and the first officer had acknowledged the takeoff clearance, a standard instrument departure, climbing to 8,000 feet to call passing 2,400 and expecting flight level 310. The runway in use was 2 7, the end of which was just over a mile, a couple of kilometres, from the west coast of India, and as they lined up to depart, in front of them was the dark expanse of the Arabian Sea, which they had to cross to reach their destination, Dubai. The captain pushed up the throttles of his Pratt & Whitney JT-90 engines, and the vast aircraft began to accelerate down the runway. The first officer made his standard speed call outs until the captain rotated the aircraft to lift the nose wheel at about 145 knots and they took to the air. With a call of positive rate, the captain called for the gear to be raised, and as they climbed out, the few coastal lights that had been visible had disappeared below the nose. In front of them was the inky black darkness of the night sky. A change of frequency, and the crew of Air India made their final transmission, acknowledging their new climb instructions. Good evening to you, sir. Air India 855 will report leaving 80. The captain was hand flying the aircraft, and he smoothly and with minimal aileron input gently rolled the big machine into a 14 degree bank turn to the right in order to pick up the correct heading for the instrument departure. As he approached the desired compass heading, over the next 13 seconds he relaxed his pressure on the ailerons to wings level. Up to that point, all had been quiet, orderly and calm, the captain's flying smooth and controlled. Everything had been progressing as expected. The crew and passengers had no idea that, for them, a clock was ticking down. It had started as the captain pushed up the throttles, and it only had 101 seconds to run. It wasn't a real clock, it wasn't a timer attached to some terrorist bomb, it was a clock that only you and I can hear as the story unfolds, but it has already reached 87 seconds and has a mere 14 seconds left to run. As the captain eased the pressure on his control yoke, the 747 slowly rolled back to wings level, but then continued past, to the point until the left wing was nine degrees down. At this time, his smooth handling ceased, as he put an abrupt input into the controls first left, and then right, and finally hard left, followed by a rudder input to the left as well that would have exacerbated his application of left aileron. As the aircraft rolled through 32 degrees of left bank, he exclaimed... What's happened here? My instruments. With the captain's control inputs undiminished, the big airliner continued to roll, and from a height of a little less than 1,500 feet above the black ocean, they reached 47 degrees of left bank. In reply to the captain's comment, the first officer replied. My uh, minds also, his words were garbled, possibly, he said, toppled, looks fine. The pilots were referring to their attitude indicators, the instruments that, without being able to see the real horizon, give a representation of where it would be and how the aircraft was orientated. Each pilot has his own cluster of independent instruments, in the centre of which is the all-important attitude indicator. It has pride of place, since it is the most often referred to. However, because the aircraft's attitude is so important, there is a third, standby attitude indicator, a backup that is independent of the other two, positioned a short distance to the right of the captain's main instruments, but easily visible to both pilots. From his seat, in between those of the pilots, the flight engineer had a good overall view of the main instrument panel and was the first to realise exactly what the problem was. He tells his captain, don't go by that one, don't go by that one, almost certainly indicating the captain's attitude indicator, but the pilot's reaction was to add more aileron and rudder to what was already a severe angle of bank. The flight had a mere six seconds of time remaining. The captain called, ''Check your instruments!'' To which his first officer replied, ''Mine has also toppled.'' But the flight engineer, who has correctly assessed the situation, interjects, ''No, but go by this, captain!'' probably pointing at the standby instruments. All the time that the aircraft had been flying with increasing bank angles, the lift that the wings were creating to keep the huge machine aloft was tilting further and further away from the vertical. The nose was dropping, the speed increasing, and the small separation that they had from the sea was reducing at an alarming rate. As the altimeters wound down towards zero, the captain called, "'Just check the instrument!' But whatever action he wanted his crew to perform, it was far too late. At 101 seconds, the first officer was replying, "'Check what?' when his voice was drowned out as the pride of the Air India fleet smashed into the Arabian Ocean." 35 degrees nose down, with 108 degrees of left bank, and a speed of 330 knots. It's probable that all on board died at the moment of the crash, as the deceleration from the impact would have been fatal. Either that or drowning would soon have occurred. Regardless of the cause of death, all 213 souls on board perished. At the time, it was the deadliest air accident that India had ever suffered, and to date it remains the second worst. The wreckage was in fairly shallow water, around 25 feet below the surface, and navy ships were dispatched to search for survivors a search that soon turned into a recovery of the deceased. Soon after the wreckage of the Emperor Ashoka was brought up from the ocean, the authorities were able to discount foul play, a theory that had been popular in the press, and after analysis of the flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder, a more robust theory came to light. The investigation centred, Around the captain's main attitude indicator, which appeared to have failed during the first gentle right turn after takeoff. It continued to indicate the right bank, even after the captain had rolled out of the turn, gone past wings level, and banked to the left. He appeared to have noticed the problem as he indicated from his initial statement to the crew that something had happened to his instruments. This should have been an easily resolved situation. When faced with a fault with his instruments, he should have handed control to his first officer whilst he assessed the problem. A quick comparison of his main attitude indicator against the standby instrument would have shown a discrepancy, and it should then have been a simple matter to resolve the conflict using his other instruments. The compass and rate of turn indicator would have quickly revealed which instrument was faulty, even if his main attitude indicator wasn't showing a red fault flag. Then it should have been a simple matter of selecting his main attitude indicator to one of the two alternative gyro sources, ideally the centre inertial gyros, or if they were unavailable then to the same source as his first officer, the right side system either way having realized that his primary attitude information was suspect then from that moment on he should have ignored it in addition it should have been equally simple for the first officer to have compared his attitude indicator against the standby and having proved to himself that his was operating satisfactorily then he should have prevented his captain from continually rolling the aircraft to such an excessive bank angle that he put everyone into danger. Certainly, the communication between the crew was far from obvious. The captain's first question concerning his instruments didn't clearly state the problem or what he wanted his crew to do. The first officer's reply was also ambiguous in the extreme first stating that his A.I. was toppled and then that it was fine. There certainly didn't seem to be the urgency in their conversation that would have been appropriate as they overbanked and started their descent into the ocean below. The likelihood of disorientation is an added factor that almost certainly affected the captain's performance gentle turns won't register with the pilot's sensory organs held within the semicircular canals, so as far as the balance organs are concerned, they were still straight and level. Pilots are taught to rely on their instruments when their bodies tell them lies. The big main attitude indicator in front of the captain that for decades he had relied on was now giving him false readings that, combined with the confusing signals that he would have felt from his balance organs once he started rapidly putting roll inputs in, would have made things worse. One thing's for sure, despite recognizing an instrument problem, the uncoordinated crew actions and the lack of disciplined problem-solving led to their downfall. Officially, the cause was put down to irrational control inputs by the captain following complete unawareness of the attitude as his AI had malfunctioned. The crew failed to gain control based on the other flight instruments. Sadly, as I mentioned at the start of this tragic story, had the crew departed on their original timing, there might just have been enough light remaining for the captain to see the real horizon in front of him and recognise the failure he was facing, thereby dodging the awful outcome. There was one final twist to this story which makes me wonder about it. A court case taken out in New York against the aircraft manufacturer Boeing and the instrument maker, Leah Siegler, attempted to prove that there was a design fault in the aircraft instruments, which prevented warning failures from being displayed. In reply, Boeing's lawyers said that the crash had been caused by the incompetence of the crew and that only intimidation of potential witnesses had prevented confirmation of previous charges that the captain had been drinking the night before the fatal flight to celebrate the arrival of the year 1978. If you enjoyed this story, then please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. It helps Plain Tales to be found by a new audience. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. And to all of you who are listening to this, may our new year of 2001 bring us better fortune than those in this town.